From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Monday to each and every one of you. I hope that you're enjoying your 4th of July weekend. It's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. Uh, we are going to empty out the mailbag. Some people has, have accused uh, oh. <laughs> Father Tregilio of, of being Santa Claus with his white beard, uh, now that the beard is no longer uh, dark uh, as it once and was. And it's been dark in a long time. And that's not, and that's not a... That's not a bag of toys over his shoulder. It's the mailbag, and so his he's his he's having developing a little lower back problems because of the size of the mailbag. So we're going to empty some of that out uh, today. Uh, I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program, and um, our host, as he is every Monday, is the aforementioned and aforeheard Father John Tregilio. How are you? I'm doing fine, thank you. Hope everyone's having a good Independence Day. Yeah. Do you have all your fingers and toes still? Uh, yeah, as a kid, I almost lost a few setting off illegal fireworks. <laughs> yeah. I, I could, yeah. Well, that, Being Italian, you know, Zamboni another... is the big Italian fireworks company in the United States. <laughs> well, that's a, yeah, that's, that's a, uh, well, we'll save those stories for another day. <laughs> that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother edition of Open Line Monday. Uh, we're going to get things kicked off with an email from Travis, and he wants to know, is God's will for our lives mutable or immutable? Mm, very philosophical. Um, good question. First of all, uh, God exists outside of time and space, and his will is eternal. So in actuality, what he wills, he wills for all eternity. It doesn't change. However, because we do, we change, we modify, we adapt, he invites us to ask, he invites us to pray, and to discern his will. And you and I, you know, over a course of time, whether it's a day, a week, month, a lifetime, you know, our will changes, which is different from uh, like the angels. The angels uh, have one act of the will. That's why when they were put to the test, um, the, the, the good angels, the two-thirds who were with St. Michael, who chose to do God's will, and then the one-third, Lucifer, and the bad ones, when they chose, that's it. There's no opportunity for repentance, conversion, because once they, and they know this, then it's not like a surprise. You and I as human beings, however, we have the ability uh, to change our minds, to change our will, and we make a bad decision. We can hopefully uh, amend that, uh, but it has to be before death, because once you die, your, your, your will is frozen. So in terms of God's will, God's will for us is that we, be our best, that we do our best, but he respects our free will because that was a gift from him to us. So he respects that. So if we freely choose to do evil, he allows that to happen because that's the gift of the free will. But at the same time, he gives us through his divine mercy forgiveness when we seek it. Again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday, so we won't be taking your phone calls today. Aaron writes in, in light of the Catholic stance on cremated remains, why are relics of saints allowed? Aha! (laughs) Well, the relics of saints are for public uh, veneration, whereas when you have someone who passed away and you had their cremains, um, 
you know, usually they're kept on a fireplace mantle, or I have to say, I, I know some uh, friends of mine who are undertakers and funeral directors, and you'd be surprised at how many people, Catholics included, who leave Aunt Tilly or Uncle Gus in a box, in a bag at the funeral home. They never pick them up. Um, so we discourage people from taking the ashes and sprinkling them, dispersing them all. I mean, lots of people say, oh, throw me all over the woods. Or, you know, like when John Kennedy Jr. died, they wanted it, uh, you know, cast to the four winds over the waters and that. We want them to be buried with respect. Now, with the saints' relics, these are people who have been recognized for their heroic virtue and their holiness. You cannot put on display for public veneration someone who has not yet been beatified or canonized. Um, that's why the church is very strict on uh, investigating these things. So as holy as grandma was until that starts the process, you know, that miracles have been attributed to her intercession after her death, um, the church is not going to be soliciting uh, any type of first or second class relics uh, from her. The saints, again, these are uh, objects of uh, veneration. They're not objects of worship. Uh, we don't adore them, uh, but we honor the person from whom they came. And uh, so it's not the same as someone taking, you know, ashes. And I know some people want to put around, they have little lockets they want to put around their neck, uh, jewelry as earrings or, or all kinds of bizarre things like that. That's not veneration. That's something more creepy. Veneration is when you've got a, a reliquary of a authorized saint that you, you, you're emulating, just like uh, when you go to the Arlington National Cemetery, you know, you've got the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. You know, that's giving great reverence and respect to uh, the men and women who died for our country. And uh, we have an email here from Terrence. Does one have to be Christian to receive God's grace and go to heaven? Why is it important to be Catholic? Well, it is important and it is necessary um, that one, uh, you know, uh, accept the faith. Now, this, we make the, this distinction that everyone who is saved is saved through Christ and through the Catholic Church. Some people who through no fault of their own do not know that Jesus Christ is the, the Savior and do not know that Jesus Christ founded the Catholic Church to be the instrument means of that salvation. They're not going to be penalized for what they don't know uh, if all they know is through caricaturizations, you know, the, the, the misinformation that people have been telling them through their life, they're not going to be judged on that account. When someone has studied this, prayed about it, looked into it and said, I refuse to accept Jesus or I refuse to accept the, the Catholic Church or the Catholic faith, then they're culpable. Um, but I, I don't like to use the term, but uh, I have to mention it. Uh, there was a theologian um, many years ago uh, coined the phrase anonymous Christians. Uh, that makes it sound too casual. Um, you know, the Pope uh, Benedict XVI, when he was Cardinal Ratzinger, made it very clear, uh, and also as Pope, uh, that it is through Christ and through the Church all people uh, who are saved are saved. But there are people who, through no fault of their own, will be saved in spite of what they don't know. It's through it, what we call invincible ignorance is not going to uh, penalize them. And here's one that comes up every so often. I'm sure you've answered it on Web of Faith. I'm sure you've answered it on Web of Faith 2.0, and I'm sure you'll answer it if there's a Web of Faith 3.0. Absolutely. Um, Nathan <laughs> says, what is the sin against the Holy Spirit? Yes, the sin against the Holy Spirit, basically, is when 
One either uh, resorts to uh, despair or presumption. Despair is believing that you are beyond God's mercy and that you are unforgivable, which is absolutely wrong. Or when you believe you don't need forgiveness, the sin of presumption. And the reason why they're called this, the sin against the Holy Spirit is because you, by your act of the will, are blocking the Holy Spirit. Again, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, uh, as much God as God the Father, God the Son. And so by you saying to the Holy Spirit, either I'm unforgivable or I don't need forgiveness, then you're putting that wall up. And that's why it's a sin against the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God that uh, brings forgiveness. That's why when Jesus on, on Easter breathed on the, whole, on the apostles and said, Receive the Holy Spirit, who sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven them. That is the sin uh, against the Holy Spirit. So if someone is concerned internally about whether or not they have committed the sin against the Holy Spirit, there's a certain amount of willful intent involved in that, huh? You must have. I mean, it's, it's, it's got to be completely deliberate and intentional. It's not accidental. It's not like a pothole you hit on Route 65 in Alabama. Uh, this is something that you, it's, I have to say has to be premeditated, that you intentionally either despair or you intentionally presume and uh, it's not something that accidentally uh, occurs. So um, what is the Catholic perspective, Laura wants to know, on the Gospel of Thomas, and why is it not in the canon of Scripture? Well, the number of reasons why it's not in the canon of Scripture is one that n nobody in the ancient Church uh, regarded as such, and the Church, the more important one, is that the Church never officially endorsed it. Jesus gave the authority to the Church uh, to decide what books made it in the Bible. And there were a number of councils that met, and the church uh, decided that the 27 books that that we currently have in the New Testament, uh, which contain only four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, Thomas did not make it. Now, it's irrelevant if Thomas actually wrote it or not. When you read the Gospel of Thomas, or the alleged Gospel of Thomas, uh, it seems to be very Gnostic, and the Gnostics were a heretical sect that uh, the word uh, gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S, means secret knowledge. And there were sort of the bizarre things like Jesus is from another planet. Uh, when he was ten, you know, 10 years old, he zapped one of his friends. That's not what the church believes. So it didn't make it because it wasn't authorized. Plus, it was doubtful that it was even written by someone legitimately. Uh, again, a very special mailbag edition of Open Line Monday. We won't be taking your phone calls. We're emptying out the mailbag here on EWTN's Open Line with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. You know, you can rely on CNA to cover the mission and activities of the church, including social, political, moral, and cultural issues. From a perspective of faith, for the latest Catholic news, simply visit catholicnewsagency.com. It's an online service of EWTN News, and you can actually have timely news updates sent directly to your inbox. I get them every morning. Visit EWTN.com and click on subscribe. Again, a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio as we empty out the mailbag. Uh, Henry writes in, he says, My 23-year-old son asked, If Adam and Eve is just a parable, then how can original sin exist? 
Well, it's not just a parable. <laughs> that's, that's the easy answer. Um, uh, we firmly believe that there was indeed an Adam and an Eve. Now, how you get from Adam and Eve to how the whole human race propagated from after that, um, that's left to science to figure out. Because remember, uh, the Bible, especially uh, Genesis, is not written as a science book. It's not written as a history book. Uh, it's not written as a philosophy book. It's written as sacred scripture. And um, Pope Pius XII, uh, back in the 1950s, issued a wonderful document, Humani Generis, which uh, set in stone that the Catholic Church believes in monogenism, that human race can trace itself back to one set of human parents as opposed to polygenism, which the human race came from several different uh, sources. And ironically, and this was something with Father Briganti and I mentioned in our book, Catholicism for Dummies, is that there were some British um, agnostic, I think one was an atheist uh, uh, scientist, who found, discovered that the whole human race can be traced through mitochondrial DNA to one woman. Now, they gave her the name Eve because that's the name that's mentioned in uh, Genesis, the Old Testament. But they, don't, they, they didn't become believers as a result of this, but they said scientifically the whole human race through mitochondrial DNA, can trace itself back to one woman. And now they're doing studies to show that the human race can also be traced back to one man uh, through, uh, obviously, a, a similar type of, of, of genome explanation there. So even science now, you know, before it was like we were in competition with them and, you know, people were believing that the human race all came from apes. Well, that's not what science is teaching us anymore. Uh, and faith and reason always coincide when understood properly. Uh, we've got a question here from Robert, and he's referencing uh, the Gospel of John, the 20th chapter, verses 19 and following, and I'm going to read those really quickly so that you can comment. Uh, it'll be very familiar to most of our listeners. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. And Robert says, How do you address someone who says the interpretation of this is Jesus just giving these powers to individuals? Uh, well, the fact is that after the apostles received this gift, they in turn, through the laying on of hands, because remember, after Judas killed himself, they replaced him with St. Matthias. Matthias was not handpicked by Jesus to be an apostle. He was one of the disciples, but he was chosen to be an apostle to replace Judas by the apostles. They laid hands on him, and he and all the other uh, successors to the apostles, the bishops, and all the successors to the disciples, which we now call the, the priests, the presbyterate, uh, they received that power, and the church always recognized that. And we see writings in the ancient church, uh, the fathers of the church, we have uh, from St. Irenaeus, we have all the way back to the first century, uh, the, the patristic age, the apostolic age, where priests and bishops actually uh, celebrated the sacrament of, of confession. Even if they didn't use that particular word, confession or penance, they did absolve sins uh, in a sacramental form. So if this was just meant to be for the apostles, 
then you know they themselves would have been violating the the principle because they would not have uh, wanted that or they would not have then communicated this and uh, we see that that was always their intent was to uh, just like in celebrating the mass that was a power conferred on them at the last supper and then they then in turn conferred upon uh, those they ordained Again, we're emptying out the mailbag here on this uh, July 5th edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. Uh, Jan writes in, she has a question, that it's a specific question, but it really covers a, a more broad uh, topic that we, that we deal with frequently. She says, I agree with Catholic teaching on same-sex quote-unquote marriage. However, as a Catholic American, I struggle with the idea of imposing, of imposing my morality on another how do i reconcile this that's a good question and we never want to impose morality on anyone because that's not the way it's done we want to recognize morality remember right after the second world war they had the nuremberg trials where they put all these nazis on in the witness stand and they found them guilty of high crimes uh, and treason and against uh, humanity and none of them could say, well, I didn't believe, I wasn't a believer, I wasn't, you know, I, I wasn't religious. It didn't matter. The fact is you're a human being, you have the use of reason, and you should know uh, by the use of reason that there is a modicum of moral behavior, like you don't lie, you don't steal, you don't cheat, you don't murder, and certainly genocide is, is one of the worst forms of, of murder. That's not imposing one's morality, that's recognizing the morality is already out there. So whether it's abortion, euthanasia, or same-sex marriage, all these things that the church recognizes as part of the moral teaching, it's not an imposition of moral teaching. It's a recognition of the moral law that's already out there. Even St. Paul talks about the law that's written in the hearts so that the Hebrews who believe by faith, also the Greeks who know by reason. So even the Greeks and Romans uh, showed us, at, at least at their the height of their, of their society, they had uh, a, an idea of a moral code of ethics, what we call the natural law. And therefore, it's not in position, it's a recognition. Um, Dave writes in, <laughs> this is a great question for you who have been to heaven, um, how does a saint know we are asking for their intercession? That's a very good question, because saints don't have ears, <laughs> so uh, how, how do they hear? I mean... Uh, how do they communicate? We believe, and this is speculative theology, so it's not the de fide dogma, but uh, that God informs, infuses into their intellect what when someone prays, say, to St. Anthony, and they're looking for something that they lost. It's not that St. Anthony, because first of all, St. Anthony has no eyes, he can't see, he has no ears, he can't hear. So his intellect basically depends on what God infuses into it, and God you know, because of the communion of saints, infuses into the saints in heaven, but also to the souls in purgatory, that whatever information that he chooses to give to them. And certainly that's why we pray. Uh, we pray to the saints and to the souls in purgatory for their intercession. And the only way that that could work is if God somehow tips them off, okay? That's the only way they would know uh, what we're doing and what we're asking for. Uh, again, it's a mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday, so we're not taking your phone calls today. Um, Craig writes in, regarding the Immaculate Conception, I can't understand how Mary could be free from original and personal sin. Can you help me understand? 
Okay, this is something that Mary did not deserve or merit on her own. This was a free gift that God gave her so that she could be prepared to then give Jesus a uh, spotless, untainted human nature. Now, this is an analogy. It's it's not perfect, but uh, it's one I've heard many times, and I, and I like it myself. You know, if somebody, you know, you see a, a big hole and someone doesn't see it and they fall into it, you can help them out of the hole. But you can also, before they fall into the hole, prevent them from falling into it by pushing them out of the way or putting a, a board in front of that. So Mary's Immaculate Conception is Jesus protecting Mary from falling into the hole of sin. He's the means by which it happened. She didn't do it herself, but you and I, we fall into the hole. We, we received original sin, and we needed Jesus to get us out of that hole. Mary was preserved from the hole by God's grace, not through her own merit, but by God's free will, because he wanted her to have this uh, ability then to give Jesus this uh, spotless nature. Um, it's again a mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. Um Here's a really good question. Here's a really good practical question that I bet a lot of devout cradle Catholics would like to know the answer to. Why do y'all priests wear a cope when you're doing benediction? <laughs> well, the cope first of is all, di- you, yeah. First of all, you might explain <laughs> what that is. Yeah, for- a cope is basically a cape. It's a it's a formal liturgical cape. It usually is um, gold or white. Uh, because it's um, worn for benediction. There's also uh, red copes that uh, the bishop traditionally wears when he's confirming. Um, Priests can also wear a a purple cope um, during Lent or a black cope uh, for um, uh, All Souls Day. Uh, But the cope is a cape that's worn over the shoulders of the priest, uh, whether he's wearing a cassock and surplus or an alb. It's different from the chasuble, which is something that covers the whole Okay, so it's based on the Roman toga, basically. Uh, the cope is sort of like the cloak that went on top of that. And all the clo- all the, the cope does is signify this is not Mass. This is something that is uh, external to the Mass. It's sort of an extension of the Mass for benediction. Now, what gets confusing is when you have a solemn high Mass and you have an archpriest, he's usually wearing a cope, but he's not the celebrant. He's there sort of as an honorary figure to help in the celebration. Because we just had a, a priest in Father Ken's uh, uh, parish, uh, uh, Father Ariel, had his first Mass, and he had an archpriest. So that guy wore the cope. Father Ariel wore the chasuble like the rest of us. You know, and it's it's interesting, Father, because one of the beauties, I think, of, of uh, Holy Mother Church are, you know, the, the rituals and the pomp and the circumstance, because they really give us a glimpse into the glory of God. I remember an old Monsignor at the parish where uh, I entered the church. Um, you know, I, when I knew him, he was in his 90s and almost blind. Um, but he talked about growing up in Cleveland, which you can relate to in, in that part of the world. And he talks about, you know, him and his six brothers and sisters, you know, mom would get them all bundled up in the winter. You know, it would take each one five minutes to get all the coats and scarves and boots and everything else on them. And they would walk up the hill three blocks to the parish and go to Mass, undo everything, redo it at the end of Mass, walk all the way back down. And he said the impression that left on him was, I'm not sure what's going on here, but it must be really important. Oh, yeah. And, And, you know, everything means something. Yeah. You know, so all the beautiful traditions, whether big T or small t, the nice thing is that these things mean something, and too many Catholics are unaware of why we do that. You know, like when you make the sign of the cross with your thumb on your forehead, your lips, and your heart, 
just before they do the gospel. You know, th- that's a beautiful little tradition that teaches us about the, the having the gospel speak to us in our mind, on our lips, and in our heart. Again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. We won't be taking your phone calls. If you'd like to have a question answered on a future mailbag edition, send us an email, openline at EWTN.com. It's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. That's right. Not taking your phone calls today. We're emptying out the mailbag here on this 4th of July weekend. Uh, John writes in. He says, I was taught that because simony was a problem, we had a celibate priesthood. If there was an end to the celibate priesthood, would simony still be a problem? Uh, well, uh, simony is, is is actually the sin of selling things, selling religious um, you know articles or selling God's grace, which you can't do. Um, if I say to someone, I'll hear your confession, but you got to pay me five bucks, that's the sin of simony. Um, remember, it comes from the name of Simon Magus uh, in the in the New Testament. He wanted to be uh, ordained as a, a bishop, and he offered money, and the apostles said, no way. And, uh, you know, he went into a contest and ended up in his death. And his, the name of him, Simon, then was attributed to the sin of simony. Uh, so celibacy and simony, I, I don't see the, the connection there because that's two different things. Uh, simony is when you try to sell something and, and celibacy is when you, you, know, you, you yeah. pledge that you're going to be married to the church as opposed to uh, taking on a, a human uh, spouse. So... Whether there's a celibate priesthood, there's not a celibate priesthood, under any circumstances, simony is always going to be a problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, it's. I think uh, unless he was talking about a, 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 another word, but simony is is any time a priest, deacon, or even a layperson, when you try to sell something, that's why we tell people to be careful. Don't go on the internet and and buy religious things. You know, uh, you can't buy a, a papal blessing. You can't buy, uh, you know. Now, people can make a free will donation or offering to the church or to the priest. It's called an honorarium or stipend. But yeah, whole I, level. as a priest, am forbidden to charge people for sacraments. Very good. Um, Bert wants to know, was the role of the paraclete during Pentecost just for the apostles or for everybody? Uh, no, it was for everyone because, remember, uh, now, obviously, at Pentecost, uh, the Holy Spirit came down upon the apostles and the Virgin Mary, and also it's important to note that Saint Matthias had already been chosen to replace Judas at this point. So there were the twelve apostles and Mary in the upper room. Holy Spirit came on upon them in little tongues of fire. But when they went out and preached, everybody heard them in their own native tongue. So that was a sign that the Holy Spirit was not just with the apostles but also with all the people there. And remember, there were lots who were converted that very day by the Holy Spirit. And uh, we received a call after hours on our listener comment line. Uh, Let's take a listen. Hi, this is Michael. I'm calling with a question. I'm a devout Catholic, but I sometimes wonder, what is faith? That's my question. Thank you. Okay, I I miss... What is faith? Oh, uh, faith is a theological virtue 
which obviously is given uh, at baptism. And, you know, we get the three theological virtues are faith, hope, and love, or sometimes called charity. Uh, faith is something is an act of the intellect where one gives assent to that which has been revealed. And uh, faith is different from uh, knowledge or reason. That's something that your intellect knows by itself, or you can ascertain something like two plus two is four. Uh, you could figure that out. Whereas that God is three persons and one one God, uh, the Trinity, that's something that we could never figure out on our own. It was revealed to us by God, and we either give assent to it, we say, yes, I believe, and again, not because uh, it makes sense, but we give credence to the one that we know cannot deceive us. And so any article of faith that we have, you know, we when some people talk about the leap of faith, jump of faith, Faith is not contrary to reason. It's above it. It's beyond our comprehension. It's like a kindergarten kid, you know, uh, is going to be have difficulty with differential calculus unless there's some kind of bizarre genius. Uh, after a while, they may uh, be able to. But uh, you and I, in terms of uh, what God has revealed to us, we're like little pea brains, all right? And God is this infinite, vast source of all truth and knowledge. So what he reveals to us is something that we need to know, we have to know, but we can never know on our own. And that's faith. Um, Chris would like to know, what is the Enchiridion Symbolorum? The Enchiridion Symbolorum is basically a collection of all the decrees of the Church through their councils, okay? Beginning with the Council of Ni Nicaea, 325, and now obviously going all the way up to... Uh, the Second Vatican Council, but also all papal letters and encyclicals as well. It's they're basically uh, in Latin. That's why it's a, it's an official Incaridian. The word Incaridian means a, a collection, just like the Incaridian Indulgentiarum is the collection of in Book of Indulgences. The Incaridian Symbolorum um, that was and the publisher was Denziger. So whenever you're reading an official document, you might see DS or DZ and then a number. Well, that paragraph number is a reference to the Denziger's issue of the Enchiridion Symbolorum, and that's sort of like the um, hallmark, the standard by which uh, dogmatic decrees are identified. Here's a good one for you in, in your non-Dominican habit. Um, Patrick would like to know, where do we get the practice of saying specific mysteries of the rosary during specific seasons of the liturgical year? Is this meant to follow... Is this meant to be followed strictly? It's not meant to be strict because the original rosary that St. Dominic had uh, was 150 all right, um, uh, beads. Uh, it was a bridge to what we now have, which is the typical 50 version, and uh, that you're obviously allowed to use. Um, but originally, because the, the Jewish people had the little beads or knots and they used that to pray the 150 psalms. And then when St. Dominic uh, was given the rosary by the Blessed Mother uh, to meditate upon uh, the mysteries of Christ, the joyful, the sorrowful, and the glorious, and now we have the luminous, those mysteries were all contained in one complete rosary. And because for a lot of lay people uh, and even parish priests, it got to be a bit too much <laughs> to do all at one shot. So uh, we got the abridged version, and to make it seasonal and to make it a little bit more interesting, that's why you know, we typically will do like the, the um, 
sorrowful mysteries during the season of, of Lent, the glorious during the Easter season, and so forth. Uh, Darren writes in, why is the church so insistent that the host is the actual body and blood of Christ? Because we take Jesus at his word. He said at the Last Supper, this is my body, this is my blood. Predicate nominative, going back to your old uh, English grammar days. <laughs> this is, that's an equal sign, okay? He didn't say this represents, this appears, this, you know, this is, the verb to be. And this makes sense when you take what he said at the Last Supper with what he said in John's Gospel. You know, you must eat my flesh, you must drink my blood. How do we eat his uh, flesh and drink his blood if he's already gone up to heaven, he ascended? And, you know, we're not into cannibalism, are we? No. But when he said over bread and wine, this is my body, this is my blood, you can drink and eat what looks to be, what appears to be bread and wine. Uh, it doesn't gross you out. I mean, I'd be the first one. If if, I, if that chalice looked <laughs> like blood, and if that host looked like a hunk of human flesh, I'd be on the floor, all right? I have to tell you right now, as a hospital chaplain, I passed out a lot. Um, so thanks be to God, transubstantiation takes place, and only the appearances of bread and wine remain, but the substance, what the thing is, uh, changes. So that and other, if it, otherwise, Jesus was telling a lie. And I cannot stomach that because, you know, he's the Savior. He's second person of the Trinity. He said, this is my body. This is my blood. Again, we're not taking your phone calls. It's a mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. We have an email here from Katie, and she says, When we pray, how do we balance knowing that God has his will for what happens in our lives? Well, we pray as Jesus did in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if possible, let this cup pass, but not my will, yours be done. He shows us that it's okay to ask, even to be released from our, our suffering, even to pray that the cross be taken off our shoulder. It's okay, but we have to always add that proviso, but not my will, yours be done. So it's, it's, it's only 50% if you're telling, giving God a, a grocery list and you're ending it at that. You should always say, if it's possible, if this is accordance to your will, but if it's not, give me the strength to carry on. Um, here's an email from, from uh, Peter, and uh, I laugh because it reminds me of a, of a children's book. Um, he says, can you explain the verse in Matthew where it states that it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven. <laughs> yes, because, you know, as Americans, we look at that and we say, this is completely insane. This is ludicrous, okay? <laughs> well, we had a scripture professor who tried his best to try to convince us that the um, the eye of the needle was actually a gate somewhere in the Holy Land, <laughs> and it was a tight, narrow gate, and camels got stuck in it. I don't think that's what, no. You have to remember, in the Hebrew language, they use a lot of hyperbole. You know, Jesus said, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Well, we're not chopping people's hands off. We're not poking out eyeballs. We haven't done it uh, from day one. Why is that? Because we re realize that's a, a figure of speech as a way of talking. Jesus also said, if unless you hate your mother and father and your brothers and sisters, you can't be my disciple. We don't take that literally. We take it as a figure of speech. Uh, likewise, you know, these um, uh, sayings of Jesus... We have to take that in complete context. And so even though it sounds absolutely impossible, the idea here, using hyperbole, is that it's very difficult, 
but but with God, all things are possible. So, you know, technically speaking, because God is God, he could get a camel through an eye, eye of a needle, but it's not to be interpreted, you know, too um, literally as if this was a science experiment with Mr. Wizard, for those of you who remember mm-hmm. back as far as I do. Um, you know, I, I laugh because I don't know if you're familiar, Father John, or not, with the uh, Anthony Stefano children's book, Rick, uh, Roxy the Ritzy Camel. No, I missed that one. Yeah, she, he, he writes about <laughs> Roxy. She's the main character, and she's got a whole bunch of stuff, and she's got it all piled up on her hump, and she's trying to get into the city, which is a type of heaven, and she can't fit through with all the stuff on her back, so she finally comes to the realization that she's got to leave all that stuff behind, and then she can fit through, and and it'll all be good, and it's a it's a beautiful story. It's a great moral, but uh, our our oldest granddaughter and our youngest daughter, uh, the two of them came to the, independent of each other, came to the exact same conclusion, which I'm not sure is what Anthony Stefano was looking for, and they both read the book and said, well, she should have just pushed her stuff in first and then followed it. Should have should have the Uber driver uh, put in the trunk. <laughs> that's right, that's right. Um Jason asks, how do I know evil is the absence of good rather than good being the absence of evil? Mm, okay. Well, just like in science, the physics, okay, cold is the absence of heat, okay? Uh, heat is not the absence of cold, all right? Uh, heat is a positive thing. Good is a positive thing. And evil is the privation of good. Is the absence of a good that should be there, all right? The fact that a stone is blind, cannot see, is not evil, it wasn't designed to see, but when someone has blindness, we say it's not a moral evil, it's a physical evil because people were, were made, created, so that their eyes would work properly. Likewise, the moral evil is when I'm doing something that uh, not only goes against God's law, but it's an absence of doing what is right and virtuous by me doing something that is evil. So it's not a yin and a yang, it's not the two oppo- you know, the dark side of the force and the light side of the force, you know, that dualism is an Eastern uh, philosophy that the church has always rejected, a dualism, a Zoroastrianism uh, nonsense. No, we believe that good is a positive, and just like light, uh, light is positive, dark is the absence of light, evil is the absence of a good that should be there. Uh, be sure to check out Women of Grace tomorrow morning, 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Uh, join, uh, join Johnette and uh, her callers for uh, an insightful program on women's spirituality. And you men can be involved, too. She always says, real men watch and listen to Women of Grace. <laughs> yes, um, I do, too. <laughs> and, it's also, and it also has the cutest host on EWTN. So uh, check out Women of Grace tomorrow morning, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio. Again, a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday, not taking your phone calls today. Um, here's a, here's a good one that we, we feel from time to time, and it, it's always worth reinforcing. Diane wants to know what exactly are the differences between mortal and venial sins? Okay. Um, now to give you again, analogy, it's not perfect, but it, it, it's helpful. You know, it's like the, the difference between a malignant and a benign tumor. Benign tumor is not going to kill you, but it's still not something that you like to have. Uh, a malignant tumor is, is deadly. Okay. It's lethal. Mortal sin is called mortal because it kills the life of grace. Venial sin, okay, is not deadly, but imagine if somebody were to walk around with this big, huge, 
things sticking out of their face, and the doctor said, well, don't worry about it. It's benign. You still say, but doc, get it off me. It doesn't belong there. It looks hideous. Yeah, but don't worry. It's, 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 it's benign. It's not going to kill you. You wouldn't want it on your face. But we are very comfortable with venial sin. Now, mortal sin requires three things. It has to be grave matter, so the serious thing that we're about to do. You have to have full consent of the will, and you have to have sufficient knowledge. If any one of those three is missing, then it's not a mortal sin in that particular case for that person. Their culpability is reduced, and then it becomes a venial sin. Um, but you must have all three present, and if they are operative, then you are, do have a full-blown mortal sin. And for a Catholic, you must go to confession to a priest to get that absolved. Here's an interesting question. Sam says, if the Catholic Church doesn't accept in vitro fertilization because it's not the normal way of conceiving, how does that square with Mary's conception of Jesus? Okay, well, um, in vitro is artificial. Mary's wasn't artificial. It was the act of the Holy Spirit. It was supernatural. That's the the difference. In in vitro is an artificial way of of conception. Just like you have artificial contraception, this is artificial conception. And in vitro is particularly nasty because they purposely, intentionally um, fertilize more than one egg. And as soon as you fertilize the egg, that's an embryo. That's a human being. And then they pick the best of the crop. Well, if you've fertilized three or four or five uh, eggs, and those are five embryos, five human beings, and you only take one or two of them, and the rest you you cast off, that's murder. That's wrong. But also, even if you were just doing one of them, it's an artificial means of, of conception, and Mary's immaculate conception was done by the power of the Holy Spirit, so it was supernatural, it wasn't artificial. Again, a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. Amanda wants to know if you can explain why we can call a priest father. Okay, well, even St. Paul himself, you know, uses this uh, analogy. You know, my son, okay, my spiritual child. Um, Jesus, you know, if, if he was, people always say, well, Jesus said, call no man on earth father. And yet he gives a parable where this guy, you know, Lazarus, the the poor man who dies, you know, uh, he talks about Father Abraham. Well, if it's called no man father, even Jesus would be violating his own rule by calling uh, Abraham Father Abraham. Um, we would be wrong into having Father's Day or whenever you fill out a form, you know, it says, who's your father? <laughs> you're going you're gonna to put God? No, you're going to put, you know, your dad's name in there. Are we violating that? No. When he said call no man on earth father, he's talking about this, the special role, unique role of God as our Heavenly Father. Uh, that is something, uh, it, it's uh, it's analogous in, in that regard. It's not something to be taken absolutely literally, because if that were the case, then Jesus himself, you know, uh, would be violating that, and the, the church has never, you know, we talk, talk about the fathers of the church, we call George Washington the father of our country. Uh, you know, the, these are figures of speech we're talking about a spiritual reality. So when I'm when I'm called father, I'm not replacing God. I'm a spiritual father because in baptism, I help bring someone uh, by being born again of water and the spirit. I'm helping feed them through Holy Eucharist. I help heal them by going to when they go to confession or when they when they're anointed. So I'm doing at a spiritual level what my father did at a biological level. 
Um, again, a mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. Not taking your phone calls today. We'll be back at it tomorrow with your phone calls on Open Line Tuesday. Jeff asks, is there any documentation of an account of Our Lady encountering her son Jesus during his 30-day resurrection? Uh, there is no particular um, scriptural um, passage. There's nothing particular in sacred tradition. However, uh, both Pope John Paul the Great, St. John Paul, and Pope Benedict uh, opined on their own as official theologians, uh, as well as heads of the, head of the church at the time, that it makes sense that uh, at the resurrection on Easter Sunday, the first person Jesus would have appeared to would have been Mary. She was there at the foot of the cross. Uh, it was his mother. Uh, it would be right and just. But why is it in Scripture? That doesn't mean it didn't happen. I mean, it's not in Scripture that Jesus had a, had a breakfast, lunch, or supper mm-hmm. during his life, but he obviously did. Uh, there are lots of things, like John said, are not contained in Scripture. So the popes have opined that it makes sense that Jesus would have appeared to Mary, but it was a private moment. Therefore, it, it was no witnesses, and it wasn't recorded. And here's a great question from Daryl that I've never quite, uh, I've never really pondered this myself. He says, why is it that we can have occasions of merit, yet can't merit the grace of final perseverance? Well, occasions of merit, uh, you know, is basically that an occasion is an opportunity. Okay, it's an opportunity to do good or an opportunity to do evil. You have you know, occasions of sin, we have occasions of merit. Uh, these are things where it's a possibility, okay, but nothing is definitive, all right? We're not fatalists. We're not determined, uh, you know, uh, by outside forces. We always have our free will that's operative, and we cannot be presumptive either. So that nothing is guaranteed, you know, it's not a guarantee where, you know, God owes me something, and, you know, my salvation now is, is in the bag, so to speak. Um, my salvation, uh, my redemption is always something that I have to be uh, concerned about and, you know, conscious until that last breath of mine leaves the body. Um, Julia writes in on this mailbag edition of Open Line Monday. Um, do you have your summa handy? <laughs> uh, how should we explain to non-Christians why God lets bad things happen? God lets bad things happen, okay, so that we can appreciate the good all the more. Again, because we our will can change, unlike the angels. Um, death makes us appreciate life. Sickness makes us helps us appreciate uh, health. Um, ignorance has us appreciate the knowledge. So uh, the deficiency that occurs in nature allows us to appreciate. Just like when there's a bad day weather-wise. You know, you say, oh, I can't long for a nice day. Well, if it was a nice day all the time, you would take it for granted. You wouldn't appreciate it. So the fact that we have death, disease, things don't happen the way we expect or, or we anticipate or feel we don't deserve, God allows these things to happen because we were created not for this world. We were created for heaven. So here on earth, it's imperfect. Uh, our joys are temporary, but so are our sorrows. Um, Orenda would like to know... She basically says that when she tries to read the Bible cover to cover, she always gets bogged down in Leviticus. <laughs> and she wants to know, how are we to understand all the laws in Leviticus? Are those still in effect under the New Covenant? Well, they're not in effect in the sense that they're binding, okay? Uh, so we're Because remember, Peter had that uh, that dream where the food was flying out of the sky and, you know, 
uh, pork chops and bacon and sausage <laughs> were flying down on him. And, you know, me being Italian, I said, that's I'm glad of that. Um, Leviticus isn't to be interpreted in the same way as it was for the Jews at the time it was issued. Remember, Moses, and it's called the Mosaic Law, uh, this was the way in which the Jews showed their that they were truly Hebrews of faith by observing those dietary laws, and it kept them safe too. Because in ancient times, you know, we had the, no way of preserving food like we do today. So avoiding foods like uh, uh, pork that could get trichinosis and you could uh, get sick or die from it, you know, who understood those things back then? So they were just told, "Don't eat these things," um, and it was more of a religious fervor, but. Uh, Leviticus is still inspired text. Uh, there's parts of the Bible where you could read and say, I really don't understand, you know, what's being said here. Well, you don't have to. It's inspired, infallible, inerrant, but it may not be completely relevant to you at this particular time and place. It doesn't take away its efficacy or its value. And the final question for this uh, edition of uh, this mailbag edition of Open Line uh, Monday, Mark says, "I have often wondered when is the appropriate time to stop kneeling and sit after receiving the Eucharist during Mass." My mom told me when I was a kid that it was after the remaining hosts were put in the tabernacle. Is she correct? That is suggested. It's not mandatory. Okay, um, I myself as a priest, you know, uh, if we're in the church, uh, we like to stand or um, uh, kneel until the tabernacle is closed, but it's not mandatory. It's not in the rubrics. The general instruction of the Roman Missal doesn't say that you must at this particular moment do that, but as an act of personal piety, I would say you should wait. Father John, thanks for being so gracious with your time. I'm happy to do so, and uh, say a prayer today. My brother passed away on uh, July 5th, back in 1997. Oh, very good. Would you leave us with a blessing? And the blessed mighty God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit descend upon you and may with you forever. Amen. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father John Tregilio, our producer, Michael McCall, I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in. Enjoy the rest of your holiday weekend. We'll be back at it tomorrow with Father Wade. Until then, God bless.